Have you ever picked up the Bible? Some of you are like, nope. Well, we'll work on that, okay? Have you ever picked up the Bible, though, opened the thing? You know, maybe you're doing your own devotional reading plan. Maybe you're, uh, you're doing the random, like, and we're going to read. You ever done that? And you start reading, and then you keep reading, and you're like, uh, hi, uh, uh, and then you just flip to another section. And you, see you ever done that? Well, when you're preaching, you don't have that option because you're like, oh, you got to preach this one. I totally did that, though, with this passage this week. I don't know what it was. This was one of the most frustrating passages for me. I, I struggled so much with this passage. I read the thing, like, I started reading this thing three weeks ago. And, you know, I picked it up and I was like, okay, maybe it just didn't make sense then. So I, like, a couple days later, picked it up. Nope. Okay, a couple days later. Nope. And then we got into this week. <laughs> okay. I still didn't know what the heck it was talking about. So I did what you're supposed to do. So I, I found some new translations, some different translations to see if that helped. Didn't help. Uh, then I found some commentaries. Commentaries are books that like scholars write um, to help us kind of understand the scripture. But they didn't write very well because um, I still didn't understand this section. And so finally, on Wednesday, I went to Pastor Chris and I was like, okay, help, help. Like I'm totally stuck. What do you got? And, and Pastor Chris and I talked it out, um, and I thought on Wednesday I understood it. I was like, awesome, great, good. Now I'm going to go plan for youth group because we're doing like a slip and slide night that night. I didn't have time to work on the sermon that day, but I was like, at least I got it. Shouldn't be that hard to write. So Thursday, you know, I sit down uh, at my desk, and I'm like, all right, let's, let's pound this thing out. And then I open the Bible again, and I read it, and I go, uh-oh. <laughs> I just didn't get it. I didn't get it again. I don't know what it was, but this is just such a hard passage for me. So I, I read and I prayed and I, I just kept wrestling with it. What is the point? What is Solomon trying to get at? How does this make sense at all? And then it like, it clicked. I want to say it like one, one in the afternoon, it clicked. And I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So I like grabbed my Bible and I ran down the hall. Lee, Lee, does this make sense? Lee, does it make any sense to me? He's like, yeah, that makes sense. All right. So then I ran downstairs to Chris. And I was like, Chris, Chris, I think I got it. I got it. And I tell it to him and he goes, yeah, I told you that yesterday. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but I tell you this for two reasons. All right, for two reasons I tell you this. And the first is pretty simple. Look, the Bible is not always an easy book to read, all right? And I think it's encouraging every now and then for us to kind of admit that to each other, all right? I have been going to school for 10 years studying the Bible. It is still a hard book at times. Parts of it have been written 3,500 years ago. Of course it's going to be hard to read, okay? But it doesn't mean we give up on it, all right? And in those sections where it's difficult, press into it. Read it more. Wrestle with it. Talk with people, that's kind of the beauty of being a part of a church is just having other people you can call up and go, okay, help me understand this like I did with Pastor Chris. But the other reason I'm telling you this is this. Because once I got this, once it like clicked, I was like, oh! I was like, I, I am so ready to preach this. I, I can't tell you. It was just instant. I was like, I know exactly what this is about. This sermon took me like no time to prep. I mean, considerably, I mean, the prep of figuring out the passage took forever, but writing it was super easy. If there's anything good about this sermon, it's not because John Alexanian is a brilliant preacher, by any means. 
It's because simply this was just like, it flowed. It clicked. This was the Holy Spirit. And so I'm really excited to preach it to you. Okay? So today, what we're going to see and why I think this passage is so cool is because there's actually two layers to this passage. And I think those two layers is what makes it so confusing. The first layer is Solomon's main point. All right, if you're going to read through it, Solomon's got a big point, And his point is pretty simple. Wisdom is of great benefit. Wisdom is absolutely worth pursuing. Wisdom is worth your effort to attain. Wisdom is good, but wisdom has limits, all right? Wisdom doesn't resolve all of our issues. And because wisdom has limits, all we can really do is trust in God. We can't trust in ourselves. We can't trust any worldly thing, as Solomon has already proven. All we can do is say, all right, God, I, I hand it over to you. I submit to you. I trust you. And so we're going to see that's where Solomon concludes. But right after he seems to conclude his point, he kind of goes on a little tangent. And he asks this simple question, but I don't get it. All I see is the righteous getting what the wicked deserve and the wicked getting what the righteous deserve. In other words, I don't get it. Why is it that bad things happen to good people? Why do good men die young? Why do brothers and sisters have such a hard time making ends meet? I don't get it, God. I trust you, but I don't get it. Then he comes back to his main point, as you're going to see. And in his main point, he goes, look, once you've kind of handed life over to God, you don't got to stress. You don't have to stress about the future. You don't have to stress about your purpose. You don't have to stress about your worth. All you have to do is be faithful. All you have to do is submit. All you have to do is trust God. It's pretty simple. And when you do that, Solomon goes, life is a lot easier you can simply eat, drink, and be merry. You can enjoy life. You can enjoy every day as a gift from God. Pretty cool, right? So what I want to do today is very simple. I want to first look at Solomon's point. I want to try to understand, okay, what are the limits of wisdom? Why is wisdom good? How do we pursue wisdom? And then I want to wrestle with his question. So if I trust God, where's the blessings? Where are you at, God? What are you doing? Sound good? Okay, we're in Ecclesiastes 8. I would love for you to open up with me. Um, there are Bibles in front of you. There are Bibles underneath you, and you're in the front row. Um, Ecclesiastes 8, it is page 465 in your pew Bible. Ecclesiastes 8 comes right after, if you didn't know this, Ecclesiastes 7. Um, anybody want to guess what it comes before? Ecclesiastes 9, good. Ecclesiastes, if you remember, is this study or this search for meaning in life. Solomon has done everything in his power to try to understand what is the point of life. How do I find satisfaction? How do I find value? How do I find worth? How do I find meaning? Unfortunately, Solomon concludes everything in life is meaningless. Very depressing statement. And then he pivots in chapter 6 away from a search for meaning into giving advice about life. This is that section. And in this section, he's going to tell us wisdom is worth pursuing. Wisdom is good. Life may be meaningless, but there are good things in it. Wisdom is one of those good things. But wisdom has limits. All right? Ecclesiastes 8, chapter 1. Or, yeah, you heard me. Verse 1. That's what it is. 
Who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? For whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the proper procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a person may be weighed down by misery. Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? As no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. As no one is discharged in a time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I say as I applied my mind to everything under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then, too, I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. And it didn't make any sense. It was meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not carried out quickly, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better for those who fear God and are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them. And their days will not lengthen like a shadow. Here's where the verse of tension comes in for me. There is something else meaningless that occurs on the earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, doesn't make any sense. It's meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life. Because there is nothing better for a person under the sun to eat, drink, and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of their life. God has given them under the sun. When I applied to know my... When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God had done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they really have no idea. They can't comprehend it at all. This is the word of the Lord. Told you it's a little confusing, right? So, in order to really understand this passage, you got to go backwards. Okay, and that was the key. Was if I just looked at this passage, it didn't make any sense. What I needed to do is I actually had to go back to the pivot point. In chapter 6, remember I told you, he shifts away from the search for meaning in life into giving advice. His advice starts in chapter 7 when he starts giving wisdom and sharing wisdom with others. Okay? In chapter 7, verse 19, he declares that, again, wisdom is of great value, but wisdom has limits. The great value in chapter 7 is that a wisdom can make a wise person more powerful than 10 rulers in a city. One wise person more powerful than the 10 most powerful people in the city. Wisdom is of great value, but wisdom has limits. Even the wisest person cannot be righteous before God. That was his point in chapter 7. In chapter 8, again, he picks up on the theme. Wisdom is of great value, but wisdom has limits. Wisdom is of great value in the way it helps us learn how to communicate. And that's kind of his point with the king. Now, I looked at this, and I was like, I don't have a king. I don't, 
Why does this matter to me? I don't have to worry about this. But what he's getting at is wisdom isn't just about how to deal with a king. What wisdom helps us to understand is what to say, when to say it, and how to say it. And as you know, the more mature you get, the better at those things you get, right? <laughs> wisdom. I will tell you, this is an area of tremendous growth for me, okay? I am slowly, slowly learning what to say, when to say it, and how to say it. My mom laughs. I said slowly, all right? But that's what Solomon gets at. Wisdom is of great value. With regards to how it helps you deal with a king, it helps you so your head doesn't get chopped off. That's kind of his point, so that you can thrive rather than die. Okay, that's his thing. But for us, this still works. Wisdom is worth pursuing. Wisdom is of great value because it helps us at work. It helps us with our families. It helps us with our neighbors so we don't get fired, so our neighbors don't get angry at us and, you know, throw burning dog poo on our lawn or whatever. It helps us be able to get along with people. All right? Wisdom is of great value. But wisdom has limits. Verse 7, it doesn't help us to see the future. Verse 8, it doesn't help us have control over the wind. It doesn't give us control over our time of death or other things like that. It doesn't help us understand the way God works in the world. It doesn't help us understand injustices in life. It doesn't help us with those things. But wisdom is good. And therefore, since wisdom is good, but wisdom isn't perfect, all we can do is recognize that wisdom leads us to God. And therefore, we have to trust in God. We have to put our faith in God because Solomon has already dismantled every worldly thing we'd put, wisdom, or we'd put our faith in and goes, yeah, that's not going to help. But even wisdom, our rationale, our understanding, our ability to think, it's flawed. It's not perfect. Therefore, all we can do is trust God. Then what Solomon says is, once you do that, once you recognize there is a God and you are not him, you can eat, drink, and be merry. But to be clear, this isn't a call to debauchery. All right, that's kind of how I read it at first. He's just saying, ah, throw in the towel, you know, nihilism, uh, debauchery, whatever you want. That's not it. It's not a call for those things. It's him saying, you don't have stress anymore. When you recognize there is a God and you're not him, you don't have to worry about being in control of your future. You don't have to worry about those things. God's going to take care of you. Just as he takes care of the, birds of, the, uh, or the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, so God will take care of us. I don't have to worry about that stuff. And in the same way, you don't have to worry about your purpose in life. Why don't you have to worry about your purpose in life? Because think about it. When you hand over this purpose to God, when you recognize there is a God and you are not him, it's very simple to recognize, I don't define my purpose. I don't define my worth. I don't define what makes me successful anymore. I don't have to stress about those things. Wisdom, the ability to recognize there is a God and I am not him, is the beginning of wisdom. And when we do that, it's freeing. All we have to do is remain faithful. All we have to do is submit. All we have to do is yield to the king and say, okay, what do you got for me today, God? 
What do you want me to do? And when we start living in that way, when we start living out of what God is doing or what God is pointing us to, that's when we thrive. Us stressing about the future doesn't do a thing. And that's Solomon's point. You can stress day and night. That's where 16 and 17 come in. You can stress day and night. You can worry about it, trying to figure out what's going on in the world. It's not going to get you anywhere. It doesn't work. But when we submit those areas to Christ, it's great. Wisdom is of great value. Wisdom is absolutely worth pursuing. The way you do it is to recognize there is a God and that you are not him. That's what the Bible tells us. But wisdom has limits. Wisdom doesn't answer all of our problems. And even though wisdom leads us to put our trust in God, if we're honest, it doesn't help us entirely. And I think this is where Solomon gets to his next point. But I want to be clear, though, this isn't explicitly stated in the scripture, what I'm going to say. This may be John reading into the passage, okay? But the reason I think it's okay for me to do that today is because I, I think it's what Solomon is doing, and if anything, I know it's what we're doing. And that is this, this question of, okay, God, I trust you. God, I trust you are a good God. I trust you are in control. But what the heck? Where are you? What are you doing? Right? Look with me at 12 and 13. 12 and 13, Solomon declares, you know, wisdom is, has limits, therefore wisdom points us to God. In 12, he says, I know that it will go better for those who fear God, who are reverent before him, because the wicked who do not fear God, it will not go well for them, and their days will not be lengthened. Solomon makes this great epic conclusion at the end of this, this passage on wisdom. So wisdom leads me to God. I know I need to trust God. I know God is in control. I know he's in charge. But 14, what the heck? There's something else meaningless that occurs on the earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. God, what are you doing? Why do you allow this stuff to happen? Why is it that good men die young? Why do so many people struggle to make ends meet? Why are there babies starving to death? Why is it so hard to get pregnant? Why are my kids' lives falling apart? Why is my marriage on the rocks? Why do I have this terrible disease? Why? Why? Where are you? What are you doing? I know I'm not alone in asking these questions, right? I know I'm not the only one that's ever asked this, God, where are you at? What are you doing? I know I'm not alone because as pastor, I get asked this all the time. What's God doing? Why is it happening? I don't know. I don't know. But before we go, oh, it's not a fair question to ask why God does this or that. It is a fair question. You know why it's a fair question? Because in Deuteronomy 28 
after discussing all of the blessings and cursing, what it means to follow God, Deuteronomy 28 says, if you obey God, if you submit, if you follow him, he will bless you. What are you doing, God? Are we not trying? Right, when you're in those dark space, is that not something you say, God, I, I'm doing my best. I'm trying to the best of my ability to be faithful. Where are you? Why are you doing this? It's a fair question. But I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. Solomon tells us we can't know the answer. Wisdom has its limits, and this is one of them. If I was Solomon, I would have thrown in the towel. <laughs> Honestly, I would have given up. I'd walk away. He's just done this search for meaning. Life is meaningless. He, he looks into the future, doesn't see anything. Solomon clearly has some hope that God will act. Clearly. Some hope. But think about it. Solomon didn't have any of the prophets. Solomon writes way before the prophets show up. Solomon didn't know about the day of the Lord or when the Lord was going to return. He didn't know. All he had was this Davidic covenant thing. 2 Samuel 7, right? Of one day God will reign eternal through your line, that kind of stuff. That was all he had. If I was Solomon, I would have given up, honestly. I would have thrown in the towel. I would have seen it as completely hopeless. But thankfully for us, we're not Solomon. We're not writing in the same time period Solomon writes. Solomon knew nothing about the prophets. Nothing. We have the prophets. And like we talked about last time, Solomon could have never fathomed, never fathomed the cross. Solomon could never have fathomed Jesus. Solomon could have never known what Jesus would come and do and what Jesus would teach us about the present and the future. He could have never fathomed it. Solomon had no hope of a resurrection. No hope that life after death existed. He didn't have that. We do. And Solomon didn't have the end of the story. Remember, Solomon only had the first half of the story. He knew how things began, but he didn't see anything else. But that's not us. We got the end of the story. We see the final chapter. We have Daniel. We have Revelation. We have books we can go to, and while we're not going to say we understand everything about them, and if anybody does, run from them, the big picture, the big picture is blatantly clear in those books. Some point very soon, the king will return. Some point very soon, the king is going to establish justice. At some point very soon, the king will make all things right. So in answer to this question, why God, what are you doing? Where are you at? I can't tell you what the answer is today. I can't. But what I can do is point you to the same hope that I have. 
And so today, just to conclude the sermon, I'm just going to read from the book of Revelation for you. I'm going to look at Revelation 19, 20, and 21 if you'd like to look with me. You don't have to. And as I read, and I just want you to get this word picture. I want you to kind of see it, imagine it. I mean, if you want, take that why question. Bring it to the forefront of your mind. Have it there. I know it might hurt. But allow that why question to sit with God's answer. His response of, I will take care of this. Because as we're going to see, he has not abandoned us. He is still at work in the world. And the king will soon return. The king will soon establish justice. And the king will soon make all things right. We see this first in Revelation 19 when we hear of the king's return. In verse 11, it says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his heads are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. As David said, he will rule them with an iron scepter. And he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, but on his robe... And on his thigh, he has a name written on it. King of kings, Lord of lords. The king returns. And when the king returns, he's going to establish justice. In 20, chapter 20, verse 11, it says this, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Justice. Justice will have its day. Fairness will rule. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Justice will have its day. None of us, none of us, you don't have to worry about this when you get to heaven asking that fairness question. Why does God do this? Why? Issues of fairness will be resolved before heaven. None of us will get there and go, why? We'll understand. And then he will make all things new. This is one of the most beautiful passages in probably all of scripture. Then I saw a heaven, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. 21-2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, this, write this down, for these are the words of the trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is finished. It is done. It's over. No more. For I am the Alpha and I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magical arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery furnace, fiery lake of burning sulfur, for this is the second death. How crazy, huh? Powerful. I, I know the itching. I, I get the itching. Oh, what does that mean? How do we know? Is, are we living in that time? Not the point. Okay? The point of Revelation is not to give you details about the end. Okay? If it was, it did a terrible job. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. If anybody comes up to you and says, well, this is clearly what Revelation said. Run. They're crazy. All right? We don't know. We don't know the details. We know the big picture. And the big picture is blatantly clear. In the end, when the king returns, the king will establish justice and the king will make all things right. The righteousness and justice of God will be the last word. Solomon could have never fathomed this. Never. I can't tell you the answer to your why right now. I don't know why God allows certain things to happen. I don't. But what I do know is this. That soon, very soon, the king will return. And when he does in this awesome way, all of creation will fall to its knees and proclaim Christ is king. And holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the king will have justice. And everything will be made right. Amen? I don't know what else to do but pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we don't live in the time of Solomon where we can't look forward and see any hope. But Lord, I thank you for your word. Most of all, Jesus, I thank you for what you have already done, for the work that you accomplished on the cross and the hope of the resurrection. We thank you that those are realities that we can stand firm in 
If you are able to do those things, you're clearly able to do what we just read. But Father, it is out of that hope and out of our trust in you that we want to confess, Lord, that we still have hurts. We have questions. We trust you are a good God. We trust that you are in control, but we want to know why. Why? Why our, our family members, our friends had to die young? Why it is so hard to make ends meet? Why it's so hard to get pregnant? Why our kids are struggling? Why our marriage are falling apart? Why I have this disease? Why? But Lord, we, we know we can't understand. But we just pray for your healing. Lord, we pray for your comfort. Spirit, we ask that you would come and comfort us, care for us. Lord, I pray that as we are reminded today through worship and through your word of the final act of the story, Lord, that we would be motivated by hope, that it would be enough for us to continue down the journey to not throw in the towel, to not stress about the future, to not stress about our purpose, but to simply be faithful as wisdom teaches us to do. Lord, in your mercy, we pray, come, Jesus, come. Amen.